What's up, Bandive crew? James here. And before we jump into this episode, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever wished there was a way to connect with me as well as other listeners in real time? I have the solution. I finally got around to making a Bandive Discord server, which is people have been asking me for years and I just wasn't listening. I wish I had done this sooner because I couldn't be happier with the results. It's been fantastic. And we would love to see you join us. We have discussions about the music business, gear, the podcast, and a general channel as well. You can join the discussion now by visiting bandhive.rocks slash discord. Again, that is bandhive.rocks slash discord. Welcome to episode 33 of the Bandhive podcast. You're listening to the Bandhive podcast, the number one online resource for DIY bands to learn about the music business and touring. If you want to turn your band into a lean, mean touring machine, you're in the right place. Now, let's get this show on the road. It is time for another episode of the Bandhive Podcast. My name is James Cross, and I'm here with Aaron Jingris of Suburban Samurai. Quick side notice, Matt will be back as soon as possible, but he's got a kid on the way. Congratulations, Matt. So he will be back when he's ready, but right now he's swamp preparing for kid number two so good for you matt congratulations we look forward to having you back hopefully on the next episode but if not the next one the one after that in the meantime aaron how are you doing man it's only been an episode or two but I, i've missed odd number episodes so i think we're on number 33 it's good to be back on an odd number yeah episode. it uh, feels more like the natural flow of things so maybe this is just our correction get back into the regular order and hit the ground running again and go back to evens for Matt and odds for you. So aside from missing the odd numbered episodes, what's new in your life? Oh man, here's a totally non-music factoid for you. I guess I grind my teeth when I sleep because I kid you not, the other day I woke up and part of my tooth was missing and I did not remember uh, being punched in the face. My mouth moved in such a way in my sleep that I broke part of my front two teeth off. So thankfully, wherever we do go these days, not many places, not often, but I'm wearing a mask. So nobody would have known if I didn't tell our <laughs> listeners. But yeah, broke a tooth and I'm uh, trying to figure out how to get it fixed. Gotcha. I got to ask, first of all, you said two front teeth. So is it one tooth or two? Oh, well, just because I got to say, if it was your two front teeth, I would have known what to get you for Christmas. <laughs> that being said, I, I think it's going to be a bear to get that tooth fixed. Yes. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Aaron basically dared me to make that pun. And it, it's appreciated. I slipped a second one in there too with a chipmunk's pun. So there we go. <laughs> I got a chipmunk's pun and a bear tooth pun in there. So I'm up uh, two and oh for puns. <laughs> being awful. I'm glad to hear you're okay. Aside from chipping a tooth, that definitely doesn't sound fun, but here's to having a new front tooth and not having to wait till December for that tooth to be fixed. Yes. Santa Claus ain't got nothing on Middlebury Dental. (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. Not a paid sponsorship for the record. (laughs) (laughs) So for this episode, Aaron, I see you have a great outline here. I'm stoked because we had a great reaction to episode 29, Nine Mistakes Most Bands Make During Their Careers. And it seemed like a lot of people really kind of resonated with that. And so we have something similar that you came up with, which is Five Music Lies. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the mindset behind this before we jump right into number one? 
Yeah, so Five Music Lies, as you said, similar to the Nine Mistakes episode, uh, but rather than specific things you might do as a band member or a musician, these are all more 10,000-foot broadstroke industry level, or they tackle some of the maybe urban myths of the, the music business. Um, a couple of these are probably something you heard about when you were growing up and starting to play music in your early teens, those sorts of things. And the first one, I am directly and purposefully targeting because I've got a beef with point number one. It's the word famous. I have a personal beef with the word famous. It sounds funny, sounds silly, but actually I, I am quite serious. When you think about it, the word famous, I think it does a really great job of separating people from one another. And again, this entire point is totally my personal point of view. So in no way, shape, or form, absolute truth. But hopefully you hear a couple of points of logic that you haven't run into before. But yeah, so one, the word, in my opinion, separates people from one another. It creates like an us versus them environment. It lends itself to glorifying a lot of behavior which really shouldn't be glorified, or at best, it skips over uh, a lot of the detail and the nuances of the hard work that goes into the business. And again, that could be business that somebody's manager knocks out, or it could be the artist themselves. Again, one of my opinions about the word famous is uh, arguably it plants a subconscious notion in your head that somehow they're better or they didn't start out right where you are, that they're somehow fundamentally different and untouchable when that's not the case. Obviously, we should note that a lot of people who are recognized for their talent are recognized for their talent for a reason. You know, they are amazing or they have that X factor. Also should point out that, you know, while there are many artists that have a head start with regard or respect to their economic or social status or boost from their family. You know, basically, hey, somebody's got rich parents. That's how they did it. That's the way a lot of people are able to do what they do. They don't have some of the hurdles that you or I might have. And uh, some people, a lot of people have hurdles that I don't even have to deal with. But many don't. And many, many people, many artists uh, who you and I have both heard of probably have a much more difficult time day to day than than you or I realize. And maybe that's sort of in a weird way illustrates another thing they're talented at, that they kind of make something that's super difficult look so easy. Again, it's subjective. That's kind of my favorite point under this first point is there are wildly successful artists throughout the world who you just, you've never heard of. And a cool way to think of that would be pick your favorite band. Like again, just because I'm, I'm from the US, you know, pick your favorite band from the U.S. Chances are, if you go halfway around the world, the people walking around on the street over there may not have heard of that band. So famous is like a totally subjective term, as is successful. That's another point for another episode. But it's it's a word that means different things to different people. And often uh, in the Western world, it's usually, hey, they've been on the cover of Revolver or some popular website or you know television show. And the last point that I want to make under this bullet is, while it's valuable and it's a smart thing to always want to strive to do better, I don't think you should ever forget that there's an industry tale that's like a mile long. Basically, what that means is you know, there's a minority of hyper-successful artists, uh, Jennifer Lopez's, the Mariah Carey's, the U2, Nickelback, Taylor Swift, 
those people. And then there's an entire sort of middle class. The range of that is is enormous. Um, And a lot of seriously successful pop artists who have been on SNL, who have toured the world, probably live somewhere within that middle range, as do bands who do really well on Warp Tour but have never made it past that point. They're the king of their castle on a festival tour, but they just, you know, they can't really hold their own in an arena or a theater or a large club tour. And then there are bands who are, you know, lower middle, um, who you or I may never have heard of them, and we may go the rest of our lives without ever hearing of them, but they do okay with what they do, and it's either enough to support them financially, if that's what they're after, or it keeps them busy or they're recognized in, in some other light. And then, of course, you know, there are the people who are working towards either one of those two things. To recap, don't ever not strive to do better, but it's important to realize that the people that we typically see on TV are hyper-successful, and that does happen to people every now and then, um, and it does take a lot of hard work. But it's much more realistic to envision yourself in, in sort of that middle class. And again, that's not in any way, shape, or form referencing a socioeconomic class. That's just the middle class of musician in terms of either net worth within the industry or the size of somebody's network or popularity at, at any given time. So those are a few of the reasons, James, why I hate the word famous. It's misleading. I love that. There's so many reasons there to really dig into. And I feel like we could do a whole episode about this, but I just want to add <laughs> how many people here listening have heard of the band Pomplamoose? How many people here have heard of the band Postmodern Jukebox? My guess would be probably between a quarter to half of the people listening know those bands. How many people have heard of Patreon? Probably everyone. Well, guess who started Patreon? The singer of Pomplamoose, Jack Conti. Pomplamoose was making bank, basically doing a subscription model, and he said, hey, you know, I want to open this up to all artists. And he was already making a living full-time doing what they were doing with Pomplamoose, and now he's one of the richest musicians out there because he owns Patreon, or at least owns part of Patreon. He might have sold parts of it off. I'm sure he did. And then Postmodern Jukebox, they're a band who does, like, early 1900s, I think 1920s, 1930s style big band jazz covers of modern hits. They tour nationwide, not right now, but (laughs) when there's no pandemic, they tour nationwide. And again, that's how they make their living. Those are two bands that do really well that have a very niche following. And I would not be surprised, and I can't say for sure, if they are followers of the 1,000 true fans model. It really would not surprise me if they are. We've talked about it in the past. We probably should do an entire episode about it in the future. But for right now, we're going to move on to bullet point number two, which is a very divisive topic amongst local bands, especially pay to play. And by now, I think probably about 75% of the people listening either have tuned out already or are screaming during their commute and look like they have road rage to anyone who's around them, but they're just screaming because pay-to-play is so awful. Here's the thing. We're not talking about pay-to-play in the sense of paying to be on a show with five other local bands at some dingy bar. That's probably not a good opportunity for pay-to-play. But 
there are times when a larger band will offer slots on their tour as a buy-in. Whoever opens the tour has to pay. And that's really an investment. If it makes sense for you and your band, it could be worth it. It could be awful, but it could be worth it. Personally, if I were to ever negotiate a contract for that, I would make sure that certain sales goals are met for each show. And if they aren't, that at least some of the fee would be refunded. So if it's, you know, a thousand cap room, then you say, hey, like we need at least 800 people to show up or it's not worth it for us for every hundred people less than 800 knock 10% off of what we're paying or something like that. But it also could be a local thing. If the right club offers a deal for a summer concert series or even one show, then it's possible that it would work. If, for example, you are a butt rock band (laughs) who sounds like Nickelback and Nickelback is playing and the venue for some reason is a medium-sized club of like 800 cap, that Nickelback is playing. They're like, yo, this show is going to sell out. We only have one opening slot. It's going to cost you 500 bucks to play. Well, if you sound like Nickelback and you're actually going to play a show that's good enough, that might be worth it for you. You might be able to wow so many people if there are 800 Nickelback fans there and they love your music. Well, guess what? You might sell more than that in merch and make that up already. You know, Aaron, you mentioned Warped Tour a few minutes ago when we were talking about Famous. There are bands who sell $20,000 or more in merch on a single day of Warp Tour. Absolutely. That's $1 per head. Like if you think about Warp Tour, typically the biggest show is about 20,000. Like they have some bigger ones, but they're also much smaller ones that are like 8 to 12,000. So if you're doing 20,000 and let's just ballpark it and say there's 20,000 people there, that's a $1 per head. That's not so bad at all. That's quite decent actually. And especially to sort of drive that same point a little further, whether it's the Warp Tour Festival or the Nickelback show thing, like whatever it is that you're thinking of when we're talking about this, if that's a local show, there is the potential for that opportunity to continue to pay dividends into the future. If it's a local show and you have a certain percentage of the audience totally dig what you're doing, they might all come to your show at the other place down the street 10 weeks from now. And you wouldn't have had uh, that growth in your fan base if you didn't do whatever you need to do to get on this show. And also, it doesn't even need to be a buy to get in on the Nickelback show. It could be you buy in to an opportunity to play at your nice local club with other local bands. And I could say this gets at any number of topics we've already discussed in past episodes. But for whatever reason, if you wind up blowing the club away, you could be invited back to perform on a bill at a later date and not have to buy in. To be honest, I did that with my high school band. I totally broke the rule. I paid to play. There's a very nice club in Burlington, and it's not even as black and white as pay to play, but it was, uh, you know, you got to pre-buy something dumb, like 10 tickets that was basically nothing. But that was the venue's way to try to generate some sort of interest, some sort of bar sales on, you know, the slow night. They were probably on Sunday or Mondays, to be honest. I don't remember. But that was one way I developed a relationship with a few of the people at that space. And even to this day, I don't keep in regular contact with the people, but the names of the specific individuals who I dealt with, they've been there forever. I think they're still there. And I recognize their names anywhere that I see them, whether they're attached to the club's name or not. And 
I have developed somewhat of a, a relationship, at least at some point, probably back in my years in college, I established a, a connection, a, a relationship, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. And I'm not going to lie and say that didn't help me get on a couple of the shows that, that it did. It's valuable. There is value to stakeholders or the people who stand in front of the door and decide whether to let you in or not. There's value in those sorts of people knowing uh, if you're willing to bust your butt or not. I'm not ashamed to say I probably paid 75 bucks <laughs> to pre-buy a couple of tickets when I was like 16 years old. But the benefits from that have far exceeded that initial purchase yeah, price. It's all about the return on investment. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And to sort of touch on your first point in this, this was not a place that was back alley, like red light in the bathroom or something. <laughs> like There is a difference between a promoter trying to take advantage of people with really wide eyes and uh, local businesses trying to explore a number of different models to kind of keep busy on their downtime. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know exactly the venue you're talking about. And like you said, you have to pre-buy tickets. So that means you get to resell the tickets for basically whatever price you want. You can give them to your friends or you can sell them at face value. You can sell them at the discounted value because I'm pretty sure there's like a slight discount when you pre-buy them as a band. So you can actually make a little money on it if you're good at selling them. That's the kind of situation where it's good. If some local promoter is like, yeah, it's going to be 50 bucks to play the show and you're not going to get paid, I probably wouldn't do that. That would not be a good deal. Moving on, let's hit up number three, Aaron. Number three is the lie that copyright isn't necessary or that it's difficult and complicated to do. Copyright is one of those things where the rabbit hole will go as deep as you want to go. But at the end of the day, just to take a few hours, educate yourself, you literally create a profile within the online copyright system. There's a little bit of reading to be done, but it really just takes a few hours. And then you're caught up, you're up to speed, you upload your songs. I'm not going to lie, you do then wait like six to nine months to get your certificate in the mail. But then it's done. So point being, the lie would be that copyright isn't necessary or that it's hard. And my argument would be that, yes, it is necessary, and no, it's not difficult. It's a very quick process. Like I just said, 75% of the time is just you sort of learning the system. It's an online system. You could always be better, but it's not difficult to use. It's not difficult to figure out. You just kind of have to sit there and do it. It's important to note that the mail-it-to-yourself trick doesn't also hold out. the poor man's copyright. Yeah. 15 years from now, I'm sure nobody's, like, that's going to be even less applicable than it is today because people used to mail themselves like cassettes or CDs or whatever, like physical medium of their art that they had. And um, in the case of music, I think it'll become less applicable because like, I don't know, everything's becoming digital. But point being, the mail it to yourself trick does not hold up. Basically, if you're serious about what you do, do it. It's a good investment. While your work of art is copywritten automatically from the point it's created and after it's fixed in a tangible form, so if it's written down or if you have a sound recording of it or a drawing, if it's a drawing or poem, whatever, registration with the Copyright Office is really just an official rubber stamp that's nice to have and allows you to file a suit against somebody should you catch anybody stealing your art and using it in a way that isn't permitted or passing it off is their own. We should point out that, you know, we're quite often dealing with two copyrights. There's one PA copyright because the song exists, 
And then uh, you'd probably have a sound recording copyright as well if you, uh, not the label or your manager, could uh, own the sound recording. But somebody who chooses to cover your song, they could also own their own sound recording. So that's where the rabbit hole gets a little deeper and it gets just a little more complicated. But typically, if you're copywriting your own work for the first, second, or millionth time, you're dealing with two copyrights. And again, the process couldn't be simpler. Or yeah, I agree. It's so important. And this is another thing we could do a whole episode on. And in fact, was going to be my suggested topic until you brought up this list. So I'm really glad you brought this up. <laughs> you know, I took a whole semester long course about copyright when I was in college. And that's just barely dipping my toes in the water. I'm not an expert. I'm not a lawyer. At some point, we will have an entire episode basically a crash course about copyright with a disclaimer that we aren't attorneys, we're not experts, we just know the common sense stuff and the information presented by the Library of Congress. So what we're telling you here is the information that's publicly available, but if there's any type of nuanced situation that you're unsure of, please, 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 just ask a lawyer because that's the only way to be sure. And even then you can't necessarily be sure because lawyers do make mistakes too. It's their job not to, but it happens. Everyone makes mistakes. So on that note, bullet point number four with this totally unplanned segue just happening by luck is there's no right or wrong way to do anything. That does not necessarily apply to copyrights and legal advice. The right way to do that is always to ask an attorney. But for That's pretty fair. much anything else, <laughs> it's just not true. Whatever works for you is whatever works. That's the best method. As long as you are not impacting other people negatively, do what you have to do to succeed. And that's the best method for you. Whatever gets the best results for you without hurting anyone else. So even though we give a ton of advice on this podcast, most of it as I like to call it, stolen from the Six Figure Home Studio podcast, what they call it is an advice buffet. You get to pick and choose what advice you're going to take based on what makes sense. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't listen to stuff that doesn't seem to make sense, because maybe if you try it, it'll make a lot of sense. But that means if you try it and it doesn't work, then maybe it's not the right thing for you. And that's totally fine. The music industry is not cookie cutter. Each band is going to have their own unique needs or solo artists or whoever. When it comes down to deciding what you want to do, you should always have a trusted source to go to and get advice, whether that's us or another podcast or a friend who's in a band who's like just one step above you or somebody else who's not even in a band, but they just have been so invested in the music industry that they know what's going on. They're going to be able to help you kind of shape your career to get where you want to be. And it's going to take a lot of time and effort. And that is something that's going to be for everyone really is you have to put in a lot of work. But for most things, however you do it is the right way to do it. And that's actually the perfect segue to the final point, super short and quick. But to kind of tie into what you were just talking about, the final lie we want to cover is that anybody will care more about what you are doing than you. Absolutely not true. There's no situation where somebody will come and scoop you up and deliver you to a place where 
you'll find all your dreams have come true and you need not to apply yourself or learn new things anymore. I wish that was a thing, but it's not. So point being, nobody's going to care more about what you're doing than you. And the easiest way to do something is just to do it. And that ties right back into what you're saying, James. Give something a shot. Short of anything close to the world of uh, what may be considered law, there's an awful lot out there with no right or wrong answer. So get out there, try something. If it works, great. If it doesn't, nobody's going to know what your success feels like better than you. At the end of the day, we just want to make sure that you walk away from what you're doing feeling good. That's the most important point that I think we want to drive home. That does it for another episode of the Bandhive podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you aren't already a member, please join us in the Bandhive Facebook group. You can find it by going to bandhive.rocks slash group or by searching for us on Facebook. Once you're in there, let us know what your biggest music lie is. What have you found is the biggest untruth that you believed and now do not? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and we look forward to welcoming you to the community. We'll be back with another new episode next Tuesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. And of course, in the meantime, as always, keep rocking. Hey, you. Yeah, you. With the headphones or the speakers. You've made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. While I still have you here, if you're not already in the Bandhive Facebook community, it would be great to see you there. We have over 600 like-minded musicians who are asking questions, sharing their experiences and advice, and much more. So if you want to improve your band's business, look no further than the Bandhive Facebook community. You can find it by searching for Bandhive on Facebook, that's B-A-N-D-H-I-V-E, or going to bandhive.rocks slash group. Again, that's bandhive.rocks slash group, and that will automatically redirect you to our Facebook community. I look forward to seeing you there soon.